Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today we are reviewing 1969's The Italian Job. But before we get into the review, let's go ahead and see what kind of an impression the movie left on the shop. Hello? Hey, Brett, it's Travis. Ugh, hey man, you put a scare into me. You almost back with the cars? Yeah, fear not, amigo. That's exactly why I gave you a call. Just wanted to give you a heads up. I'm pulling into the back lot right now in the flatbed. Oh, yeah. Check it out, man. Candy apple red, indigo blue, just like you asked for Nope. These are not what I asked for. Read the email I sent you. Uh, I mean, I, I don't have it, but I mean, you wanted two stock Mini Coopers. You said uh, do some sort of advertising, so I had Charlie paint the Hollywood Chop Shop logo on them. Check it out. Travis, these are old as shit. What exactly are we supposed to do with these? I I can't tell. Are you trolling me? Uh, we're, you said we're going to race them in the autocross. You literally said it would be good advertising. If we win... It would be good advertising if we win. These cars are over 50 years old. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right, but so why did you tell me to get Mini Coopers? Travis, when I said sporty Mini Coopers, I mean as in sporting, racing. I assumed you'd go with a car, I don't know, from a lot, not a museum. We'll be lucky if these things go 0 to 60 in 27 seconds. Right, so why did you ask me to get Mini Coopers? You know what? After the whole Lion King fiasco, I really thought you would have learned. I, oh, shit. Did, did you want me to get the, the newer minis from like 2006? Yes, Travis. We're not time travelers. There's absolutely no way these things are going to hold up against the newer models. Well, okay. But, all right, what am I supposed to do with these cars? Where, Brad, where are you going? I, I don't know. Drive the rig up into the mountains and hope they fall off the back. As for me, I'm going to go ahead and review 1969's The Italian Job. Fresh out of prison, Charlie Crocker, Her Majesty Steve McQueen, is thrust back into a life of crime when the widow of his friend Roger provides him with a mostly complete score to steal $4 million worth of gold. The plan? To hit a convoy as it leaves from an airfield in Talon, Italy to the car factory on the other side of town. All Charlie has to do is assemble a team that can reprogram Talon's traffic grid, steal the gold from an armored convoy, and escape through a gridlock city. Oh, and avoid being murdered by the very mafia responsible for Roger's death. Can Charlie and team pull off the score of a lifetime, or will their plan leave them hanging in the wind? Alrighty, Travi. Go ahead, give me your diagnostic of 1969's the Italian job. Uh, well, I, I think I have a couple of questions. Well, at least one question uh, on your synopsis there. You'll have to go into the Your Majesty Steve McQueen angle because I, I got confused for a moment. And um, I also like the... Oh, huh? go ahead. Oh, you're going to say, what else did oh, you like? Well, I also like the, uh, you know, twisting in the air at the end. That was, uh, <laughs> that was a nice touch. Um, I have to, I have to be honest with anybody who is going to listen to this podcast, especially 
if you hold 1969's The Italian Job in high regard, uh, I hate old movies. Um, <laughs> basically, but we have to do it, it, every once in a while, Travis. We have to do an old movie every once in a while. I don't I don't disagree with you. I just want to let the audience know that I am going to be completely ageist when it comes to this movie. Uh, so just just be prepared for that. Uh, just for the record, my cutoff on movies is kind of 1973 on because I feel like Jaws, even though it was made in 73, feels extremely modern in terms of storytelling beats, character development, etc. Well, the Italian kinda, job feels like the reason I don't like old movies because I don't feel like there's any sort of character development and the runtime is just used in weird ways. So I, I did not enjoy this movie. I'll get into some specifics later, but I just wanted to let everyone know that I, I'm extremely biased because this was made in 1969. <laughs> what, uh, what about you? Um, so I don't have as big a problem with old movies. I definitely think um, I do. I try and do my best to think about the movie and the time and period that it was produced because even like I think if you go back and watch a movie like The Godfather, which is revered as like a cinema, you know, one of the highlights, a diamond, if you will. I think if you go back and watch it under today's, you know, scope and understanding technology and, and where cinema has come, I don't I don't think it's as good. Um, so I always try and like take myself back and, and try and think about it at, at the time that this would have been filmed. Um but the whole comment about Her Majesty Steve McQueen is, as I was watching this movie, all I could think of was like, this was in 69, so Steve McQueen had already been dubbed the King of Cool. Um, he'd already done several movies, um, you know, Bullet, The Great Escape, a lot of stuff that had, you know, defined him in Hollywood. And I felt like this was definitely, I I love, um, oh God, I'm going to blank on his name. Uh, Michael Caine. I love Michael Caine, but I definitely felt that this was them trying to make like a British Steve McQueen with the way like he was very fashion, like, you know, very suave. He's kind of a ladies man type thing. He could be good with the with the the engines and stuff like that in the cars. I'm like, oh, they're just they're trying to make like a, a Steve McQueen in, in London, and I, I don't think it worked. I mean, because Steve McQueen is fucking Steve McQueen. So um, but that well, was. I definitely I thought they were question. trying to make even the way that he dressed, like when he infiltrated the the lavatory at the prison, and he's like in the black turtleneck. I'm like, maybe this is what criminal, you know, uh, somebody would have used if they were trying to break into a prison. But I'm like, he looks even with the hair, he looks like he's trying to be, you know, Her Majesty Steve McQueen. Well, not to be too meta, because ultimately we're here to discuss the movie. But technically, isn't Steve McQueen just Teddy Roosevelt's James Bond? I mean, possibly. Like, as far as the suave, cool car guy, didn't England have it with Bond technically before McQueen? I mean, yeah. Ironically, the funny thing is, Bond, as he's written in the novels, is blonde, which is why James Craig. Then, when they you know rebooted the the Bond franchise with James Craig, like they actually tried to be a little bit more oh, accurate. Oh yes, James Craig. Yes, James Craig. Did I say James Craig? I meant to say Daniel Craig. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ah, uh, and he's done it's it again. It's just interesting, though, yeah. like who, you know, what country gets to claim cool, you know, because obviously, like you said, this movie is kind of trying to have the British answer to Steve McQueen to Bullet, but Steve McQueen was kind of the American answer to Bond. So it's just funny, like, who is history's first cool character? I, I don't know. Maybe we could talk about that on the wrap up. But yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, as, as cool as Michael Caine is, this movie doesn't quite work. He's quirky. And yeah, he's very quirky. It's it almost reminds me of like when they tried to make the Bond spinoff, like the original Casino Royale movie, 
um, not the remake with, J- I mean, Daniel Craig, um, was was actually, it was like a spoof of James Bond. And that's what it, this felt like. Even the way the movie opened, I thought was like, okay, this is, it's very espionage-esque. Like, it's very influenced by James Bond. And I thought, like, it was, I wasn't sure if, like, it was a somatic or cinematic choice where, like, it's this guy, he's he's driving through all of these environments and, like, the the twisting and turning from the driver's seat. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a movie where, like, there's tons of, like, you know, not necessarily a double cross, but, like, it's a heist movie. So there's going to be twists and turns and, like, stuff that you didn't see coming. And none of that fucking materialized at all. I think it was literally <laughs> just, like, they, they were like, hey, why don't we put a camera in a car and drive through the countryside in a Ferrari? And I'm like, okay. Like, when the movie's done, that was, and we'll get into it, but that was my biggest thing. There was... And I don't know if it's because I'm tainted by, as you said, modern cinema, but there were so many things I thought were going to be payoffs later in the movie that just don't. They just don't pay off. <laughs> it's well, like, frankly, I'm glad because I think this would be a good place to start the conversation because it literally deals with the opening scene in the movie. To your point, I don't know if one of your payoffs was the guy in the Lamborghini that goes into the tunnel I assumed that he was going to come back. I thought for sure he was not going to ultimately be dead because the great rule of cinema is if you don't see a body, they're not really dead. And it would just make a lot of sense for him to be alive and pulling the strings for some reason. But by the end of the movie, I'm like, no, I guess he just was in that car that they pushed down the mountain with a bulldozer. Mm -hmm. Which I will say, I did love that opening scene. Like I, with, he hits those. So it opens up the guy. It's the first five, six minutes of the movie. It's just a guy in the Lamborghini driving through, I guess, the Italian countryside. He drives into a tunnel and you just see an explosion from the other end of the tunnel. It flips to the other side of the tunnel, and it's basically you just see like a funeral wreath and a bulldozer slowly pulls out of the tunnel with the Lamborghini on it. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, I was not expecting that. Like, I the tone of the movie was set for me. And, and at that moment, I was in. I was invested. I'm like, and then. They, okay, they, you're not being ironic with this. No, no, because then they take it. Like, you've got all the dudes in the suits up on the mountain. I'm like, okay, it's a little quirky, all these guys in like their suits and their fedoras with their fucking machine guns just standing here. And then they push the car over the cliff. And then, like, we we learn later that it's the leader of the mafia there takes the funeral wreath and just chucks it off the side of the mountain. And, like, even in my notes, I'm like, oh, man, this is a thing where, like, there's honor among thieves. Like, you know, he knows he's going to die. He he basically set up a funeral for him. I'm like, okay, like, I already, like, I enjoy the quirkiness of where this movie is going. And it, it just... It never follows that tone. And that's one of the things with this movie is like tonally it's all over the fucking place. Like it can't decide where it wants to go. See, that's interesting to me because it sounds like tonally you at least appreciated the opening. Mm -hmm. Even in the opening, uh, again, this is my bias speaking 100 percent. But I see him go into that tunnel in that Lamborghini and then like smash cut to like a funeral wreath and a bulldozer. And I'm like – is the driver of this Lamborghini, is he Wiley Coyote? Did, <laughs> did someone paint a tunnel on the mountainside and he just ran into it? And I'm just like, on paper, what you're describing is could be good. You know, uh, hey, it's, you're making a mistake by crossing the mafia. It's going to be your funeral. You drive into this tunnel. It's going to be your funeral. We even have the wreath and we're just going to bulldoze you down the side of the mountain. But describing it and then depicting it on screen with whatever the budget for this movie was in 1969 it just comes off as just 
the connective tissue seems to be missing. Maybe I'm too used to movies spoon feeding me scene by scene, <laughs> shot by shot, what's <laughs> happening. But I'm like, where did this funeral read? Like, I have to piece that together later. And it's just, I, the mechanics of, I don't, ju- I'm jumping around here, but to your point, you have to try to appreciate these movies for the time that they were made. I unfortunately can't do that. So I see these people in fedoras and suits standing along a mountain, and I'm like, is a Michael Jackson video about to break out? Are they going to dance in unison with these Tommy guns as this car gets pushed down the mountain? I just can't get over visually how ridiculous it looks to me, even though the description is good. Well, and even then, that's Again, and that's what I'm saying. At the beginning of the movie, tonally, I was in because I thought it was going to be kind of ridiculous. I was like, oh, this is kind of like just going to be like kind of, again, goofy. Like it almost reminds me of anybody who's seen like Kung Fu Hustle, which I assume was probably maybe at least minorly influenced by some of the scenery in this movie. Because like the the Kung Fu Hustle, the gang that basically the axe gang that's like dancing through and they're all like really dressed nicely in suits. Like I was expecting that level of almost like kind of just weirdness from from where the movie was going to go and never it never materializes and you actually make a great point about the connective tissue being missing that's this movie in a fucking nutshell this movie in a nutshell nothing is explored nothing's explained the relationships between characters don't mean anything and have absolutely no inf like there's nothing connecting any of the characters they very rarely have any interaction with one another i'm like and that's my biggest problem with there's no character development in this movie at all like and there's so many places where it could have easily happened where it's just like you're just supposed to take everything at face value like it's just a group of criminals and again like you're saying i don't know if it's just because I'm so used to the heist genre where you have the montage where we get to learn about the like the best case you know a great example is like Ocean's Eleven when we meet Matt Damon's character like there's a whole thing about them pickpocketing the wallet back and forth and like we're establishing kind of these characters their histories and where they're coming from and like that's just absent from this movie we're introduced to the entire cast of like the majority of the cast of characters in a boardroom where their name is just mentioned and that's all we know or about this character that's it that's all you learn about them is their name yeah, and I think it's tough, uh, again, to try to separate the movie from the era in which it was made. It's, it's not going to help matters that they're all just white British dudes. So well, if this except, movie were made— of course, for Big Willie. The guy who fucks it up, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to it. But uh, why he's driving so gleefully, I don't know. But um, it's just a bunch of generic white guys. So maybe if— if someone from the year 2080, assuming the, the the Earth is still around, if they came back and watched Ocean's Eleven 2001 and didn't know who Brad Pitt was, who George Clooney was, who Matt Damon was, etc., then maybe they would be somewhat confused. But like you said, I, I think modern heist movies do a, a better job of giving at least, even if it's just a, a cursory five minutes to each character so that you understand them on some level. It's just hard for me to parse whether... I just don't know any of these actors besides Michael Caine. So everybody else is just a faceless white dude from Britain. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I just don't think any effort was made to establish anyone other than Michael Caine. And even establish him as loose because basically what we know of him as is kind of a, you know, a GQ, like a gentleman. Um, He's a, he's sleeps with anything that will allow him to. I mean, it's great. He gets out of prison. He meets Maggie who I have no, I, that's another thing where I thought she was going to come back in the movie at some point. But like, uh, you know, at one point during the movie, 
it basically shows that like Michael Caine has Maggie as I guess a girlfriend, but like he's not like super attached to her. And at one point in the movie, he literally just puts on her plane and says where she's going to meet her later. And that's the last time you see that character. And like she keeps saying goodbye to him and saying his name, which again is, of course, funny because they know the mafia is after them. And she's just making a ton of attention that she's leaving. And I'm like, I thought that would come back as to why she was making so much attention because there's going to be a switcheroo there. But nope, she's just kind of a, a mindless broad. But like he gets out of prison. She picks him up in a stolen car. We already established that he's now back into the yeah, he gets out of prison immediately into crime. He then meets her back at a hotel where she has 12 women dressed in nothing but their underwear. And as they assume we just had they have an orgy. He then leaves that room to go get the plans from Roger's widow, where he sleeps with Roger's widow immediately. And then later in the movie, he gets caught with three other women when Maggie shows up. And apparently he wasn't supposed like he wasn't a free man. Maggie just did that as a gift to him for getting out of prison. I'm like, he basically the first half of the movie is just him sleeping through London. Essentially. Yes, which, again, I, I uh, it's a product of of. 1969 British cinema, but I'm like, we, I say that they spend time developing Michael Caine, but only so far in, he's just Michael Caine. He's just playing Michael Caine to me. Everything, mm. all the stereotypes we think about Michael Caine, even down to uh, one of the the Batman films, I think it was Dark Knight, where uh, Bruce Wayne leaves him on the yacht with a bunch of models. <laughs> like, I feel like that was a good callback to this, but ultimately it's like, why do we need to spend 30% of the runtime just establishing that Michael Caine can get laid like he's Michael Caine. We've we've known that. But yeah. I guess to your point, they're trying to make him Steve McQueen level cool. And that's in the 60s. That's how you depicted it, which just fucked it. Your dick falls off. <laughs> yeah. And then I did appreciate, though, when he was dealing with the team he assembled. All right. He was not given these folks. He assembled the team himself when he loses his temper with them. I legitimately did enjoy the scenes where he's just like, you are a bunch of fucking idiots. Listen, like your children, shut the fuck up. Listen, we're here for a job. And I'm like, but at the same time, like you assembled this team. And again, that goes back to the whole, like waiting for something to materialize. I'm like, Oh, this is either going to be like, they're dumb, but they're his guys. And he's going to wind up fucking over Bridger, you know? It's going to wind up being like, especially when he's talking about like, a, oh, we've got the three Mini Coopers, but then we've got the three other fast cars on the side just in case something happens. I'm like, oh, this is the, where the double cross happens, where like the Mini Coopers show up to Mr. Bridger at the the prison and they open up. There's no fucking gold. It's just the lead bricks. And he's gotten away in the Jaguars with the gold. No, that doesn't fucking happen either. And I'm like, there's so many like there's so many seeds planted in this movie for no crop to be yielded. Like, it's just, it's insane to me. Like, they just threw seed everywhere and fucking nothing sprouted, you know? Um, yeah, it, it's so difficult to try to tell what is only funny because it's been satirized by other media. I mean, I, we haven't mentioned it yet, but I, I think the Austin Powers uh, callbacks to this movie are pretty prevalent. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was thinking of the fight scene that happens behind the... <laughs> The partition yep. that just happens in silhouette. I'm like, good God, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> well, and, you know, it goes back again, referencing stuff like Mr. Bridger. All I could assume is like he was supposed to be like an Al Capone-esque character because it's like he's this he's a rich man who's behind bars. We never find out why he's behind bars, but he essentially owns the prison like 
everyone does what he wants. At a certain point, he just arranges to have a meeting with the warden, which at the beginning of the movie, I thought he was the warden. When Charlie leaves and says, you know, goodbye or whatever, and he says, I just hope I never see him again. I'm like, oh, this is the warden saying he hopes Charlie doesn't get arrested again. No, that was a rich man that was behind bars. But even like that was a weird thing to me. They never establish why he's a big wig. It just says, like, you know, at one point, the mafia guys tell Mr. Berger he can't control all of Europe. I'm like, what the fuck are you even taught? Like, aside from him being rich and in prison, I know nothing about Mr. Bridgers at all. He's he's just a rich guy in prison for some reason. So let me I, because this will probably be the first and only time that I try to really talk the plot through. So the, the gold that's being stolen is related to China because the Italians are making a car factory in China? Is that – or do I have that flipped? I think it is China is investing in a car factory in Italy, and they're paying them in gold bricks. <laughs> Got you. Okay, okay. Because so, why would you give them cash when you could give them gold? <laughs> well, you know, it's 1969 version of Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. You know, pay him in cryptocurrency. Did you? I, I'll save most of this for the wrap up. But did you find it odd the way these the, the movies in this trilogy tied together? Even though I don't think you've beaten around the bush, but there's not really a double cross in there in this movie, is no. there? No, there's not. So I thought it was interesting, though, that both this movie and No Sudden Move tied more to the auto industry than it did to a double cross. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I mean, even Tango and Cash is kind of dancing around that edge. But yeah, the, you explained the plot perfectly there. It does not matter at all. The gold is the definition of a MacGuffin, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, it is just a device to get them to Italy to drive Mini Coopers around. That is, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what exactly, like, the point of the movie is because again it is very loosely tied it is almost like uh you know it, it's one of those movies where it is just a a set piece to a set piece you know it's i don't think that like even when they bring in like there's the science the science guy they have to get the smartest guy in london who is professor peaches who is played by benny hill who benny is a, hill. a famous british comedian which I will also go on to say they do not utilize. I mean, Benny Hill is, you could have gotten anybody to play that role. Like, it made no sense to me other than to put Benny Hill's name on on the thing. Um, so, Benny Hill plays Mr. Dr. Peaches, or Professor Peaches, which he seems to live at home with his... Honestly, he came off as an autistic person to me, and I wasn't sure if that was on purpose, and I was like, so is he actually a professor? Like, I don't... It's, again, it's another thing that they say, oh, he's Professor Peaches. He's the smartest man in London, and that's where we leave it. That's We don't... There's no explanation as to why he's the smartest man in London. It is just that he is said to be the smartest man in London, and therefore he is. And they have to bring him to Italy so that he can switch out... <laughs> The programming for the Terran, um, what is it, traffic system to create a traffic jam through the entire system, basically gridlock the the city. The irony being when he actually goes and puts the program, the program was given to Charlie by Roger. The program was already done, so it wasn't like they needed Dr. Professor Peaches to make the program. They just needed him to install it into the machine, which if I'm honest, I feel like anybody could have done, (laughs) like looking at the machine. Yeah, 
Just to touch on Benny Hill real quick, it, his character, it, it kind of, it, if this were an updated version, like a, a modern heist movie, to me, the shorthand they were trying to use was he's socially, he's not adjusted well, like kind of lives at home with his mom kind of deal. I think, don't they kind of imply that he likes heavy set women? Isn't that one of oh, the, the not, ways they entice it's not him implied. to go? And not only is it, he's very <laughs> handsy. Like apparently yes. he's... Yeah, he would be. He would have gotten revoked by Me Too real quick. We'll say that. Um, because, but ultimately, yeah. he's being portrayed as the 1969 version of the guy who lives in his mom's basement, has Dorito crumbs all over his hands, and jerks off to a lot of internet porn. He's like the 1969 version of that. He's tech savvy. And yep. if you were to update that of what this movie's trying to do, I think that's that's the character that they're trying to do depict even though it gets a little to no screen time yeah again no explanation and there's the whole scene where they're like they're setting up his awkwardness where like the his mom like keeps drifting off as they're asking her questions and i'm like i actually had in my notes i'm like it's one of those things where i'm like it's funny to see what humor was in 1969 because i'm sure and the british like again because it's very british comedy like if you like monty python you'll understand it's not quite monty python um not at all but like you can understand kind of like where the British humor was in in all of that. But um it was like Annette, he he got caught doing something inappropriate with Annette in like the the parlor or something like that. And I'm like, I was expecting Annette to be like a stuffed animal or something way more brazenly weird than just a heavy set woman. You know? She just looked like kind of a like a goth chick all grown up. Like it was just like, oh, I just like I guess in 69, this would have been like, oh, my God, can you believe that? But like uh, for 2021, I'm like, that's that means nothing like that's that's not a big deal. <laughs> like that, That's not again. It's not taboo or taboo. Yeah, I, I would never call this movie subtle, but the way the comedy ages, it tends to get a little more extreme and over the top as time progresses. And this movie is I'm sure it was titillating and shocking in 69. But through the lens of today, you're just kind of like. There's a disconnect there. Yeah, I um, I did enjoy. There was one comedy line. Honestly, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie apparently was improv. I was, I was doing a little research for this. Um, it's the scene in the garage, and that was actually where I actually really kind of like where I thought I was really gonna like Charlie uh, Crocker is when he's sitting there, he's getting out his car from the garage, and like his pocket, like all of his stolen money appears to be like hidden in the bonnet, or say engine, and like how he kind of manipulates a thing like, oh, can you open it up so he could get it all out? And then he goes into the thing about he was hunting tigers in India for several years. And the guy goes, oh, you, you must have gotten a lot of tiger pellets, you know? And he goes, oh, yes, I was hunting them with a machine gun. And I'm like, okay, that, I mean, I enjoyed that line. Not to say it made me laugh out loud, but I was like, I, you know, that it made me smile when he goes, he was hunting tigers with a machine gun. Yeah, that it's funny. I did not look into that scene. I didn't realize it was improv, but that felt like the most modern dialogue slash exchange in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like that felt like you could tweak that a little bit. And if I saw that in the theaters tomorrow, I would be like, oh, that's some snappy, good interaction between two characters. So yeah. it's funny that that was improv. Was that improv on Michael Caine's part? Yeah, uh, both of them. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, that scene was completely improv. Um but it was also my favorite scene. And I would say my favorite scene. Well, second favorite scene in the movie. 
I will say my I favorite mean, scene was okay. it was only about 20 seconds long, but it was them driving through the tunnels and the Mini Coopers. That was just a cool scene. Like it was a cool shot watching them drive the Mini Coopers up in the, the tunnels. Um, I'd, I'll, I'll take it back. That was my second favorite scene. Favorite scene was the garage with, with Michael uh, Kane. So those were the two so, redeeming moments in the movie for me. So you kind of mentioned it. So I, I want to talk about the action, specifically the Mini Cooper stuff. I, again, the, my bias is going to come out. Anytime there was a quote-unquote high-speed chase, it was it was comically bad to me. Like, I think certain types of cinema are timeless. Uh, you know, I think you can tell a good drama and you could show me a, a, a dramatic film filmed in 1969 and I think it could go toe-to-toe with... A dramatic film from the 90s. But when you're talking about action, it just doesn't work because I'm, I'm watching these Mini Coopers get chased and I'm like, it looks like they're doing 15 miles an hour. Well, well, I mean, that's probably part of the reason why, you know, they had Gridlock City, they couldn't. But this is what I'll say. If you were to tell me they brought Benny Hill to choreograph the car chases and then he said he wanted a role in the movie and they gave him Professor Peaches, I would believe that because watching the car chases, all I could think of was like, oh, this is the Benny Hill moment of the movie. It's the Mini Coopers being chased by the police because all the chases were like weird. And like there's the one where like they drive up the amphitheater. And I know when they drive up oh there, I'm God. thinking, I'm like, was this always part of the plan for them to drive? And then they turn around and they drive back down and the cops can't chase them up. I'm like. This isn't like there was no plan in the movie. Like it's so like and even then, like for a heist movie, like they don't go very deep into the plan. It's basically like we have a church when they get close to the church. We're going to bring the gold into the church, load into the Mini Coopers and then drive off. I'm like they don't like most heist, I guess, modern heist movies like they go like the plan is like a 10 to 15 explanation to the audience, especially so that, you know, like when something goes weird they show you like, oh, and here was the second plan that was going on on the side that you didn't know about, you know, like that never happened to this. Like the plan was barely. And I guess I don't know if it was they just started driving through Talon and like they just decided like, oh, this is cool. Can we drive up that? Oh, that looks cool. Can we drive there? And I'm like, it doesn't it didn't feel like they had storyboarded that the chase sequence at all. No, not at all. I, the exact scene you're talking about, the the amphitheater, or it kind of looks like a miniature version of the Sydney Opera House. Like, I can't tell geographically how they end up there. It's just kind of like we cut to it and, oh, hey, good thing this ramp is here to the top of this amphitheater. It's just then, wide enough for the Mini Coopers. <laughs> and, and to your point, like in most movies, if, if our lead characters are going to drive – it, it's a chase. They're going to drive into what is essentially a dead end by choice. I, I would think that owes some explanation because they go up there and I guess they just drive to the edge of the amphitheater and then the cops can't find their them. cars don't have reverse or yeah. Yep. And number one, they can't find them. And then number two, once they make their escape, it's like the cops, they're like, Hey, I've never driven this car backwards. I'm not sure what to do. Like, I don't know how to turn this wheel and move backwards to try to turn the car around. And I'm like, why was that such an effective strategy? Yeah. No, it's, it's super bizarre. The funny, another funny piece of trivia though. Did you realize in the movie, Michael Caine actually does not drive a single car in the movie. Because at the time they filmed this, he could not drive a car. I don't know if it's because he didn't have a license or he was injured or what, but like 
he could not drive a car during the movie. So the only scene where it is actually implied that he is driving is that garage scene. Outside of that, he is always in the passenger seat of the car. He does not drive. The, it is a movie about driving and the main character does not drive. I did notice at the climax, especially because the the right hand, left hand drive, at first I thought he was driving, and I'm like, no, he's technically in the passenger seat. That seems weird that, at least to me, through my 2021 eyes, Michael Caine is far and away the biggest star in this movie, and yet he is just kind of riding shotgun, letting other people control the action. Mm-hmm. I, uh, other things that I just thought were weird was, like, the mafia is posed as a threat in the movie, and they are resolved accidentally. Um, because it's basically they create the gridlock, and it just so happens a car cuts off the mafia from the convoy that is like that has the gold bricks. And I'm just like, it would have been one thing if this was intentional, or there was like one of the 500 people in the crew cut them off and stopped them. But I'm like. They literally, like, the mafia got taken off their scent by accident. And I'm like, this is a caper. It's a heist movie. Like, everything's supposed to be intentional. Like, if it's an accident, it means that this could have gone wrong. And that they, they're not actually good criminals. They're just fucking lucky, you know? So I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought up the mafia, because that's my other gigantic issue with this movie. Um, Michael Caine... Even in 1969, he, he's a magnetic screen presence. Like, I – all the complaints I have of this movie feeling dated, he still gives a performance where when he's speaking, I'm engaged. So in order for me to enjoy this movie and overcome the 1969-ness of it all, I need some sort of counterbalance to him on the villainous side, and goddamn is it not here. Um and it's not necessarily me bagging on the the actor of the the mafia leader, but like his big flex to try to dissuade Michael Caine and his crew from doing this job is to again pull out this bulldozer, which I guess he just keeps this on a trailer and just drives around the Italian countryside just waiting for the opportune moment <laughs> because bulldozer's not exactly fast, not a quick vehicle. So again, he kind of ambushes them and it's like, hey, let me smash your car. But because this is 1969 and the way that it's filmed, it's like, you're going to hate me. This is going to devastate you. I'm going to slowly lower this scoop on this bulldozer and slowly smash the roof of your car. Are you scared now? Do you want to leave the country now? I'm like, I know this is supposed to be an intimidating gesture, but I'm thinking of, we've already discussed Casino Royale. Do you remember when Bond loses control against uh, Le Chiffre or whatever in Casino Royale and he's uh, fucking ties him up to the chair and is beating him in the testicles with some sort of like rope. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. That had some menace to it. Mm-hmm. Like, and then you also have the scene where James Bond flips his car because he ties up his girlfriend in the middle of the road. I'm like, damn, if somebody did either of those things to me, like, you know what? Yeah. I just might catch the next flight and go back home. But in this movie, it's like, I'm going to take out my big old Tonka truck and, and smash your Aston Martin and then slowly, comically slowly smash it and then flip it down the hill. I'm like, and then what what prevents the mafia from killing Michael Caine and his crew? Michael Caine's just like, hey, yeah, you know, the guy that funded this job, he'll be pretty mad if you stop us. He'll fuck your shit up. And the Italian mobster's just like, oh, shit, you're right. 
<laughs> okay, I, I'm going to back down. And I'm like, did you not anticipate that he had funding for this? He just got out of prison. How else? Like, he was aware of, like you said, the, the crime boss from prison. But all it took was like, yeah, he'll be pretty upset. And that was it. Go go along with your plan, Michael Caine. We're good. Well, and that goes back to like I, you'll I, have to buy a new car. Ah. Yeah, I, it's where I, I have in my notes. I'm like, I don't think the mafia should have been in the movie. I feel like the mob, the crime boss, his character could have been almost exactly the same if he had just been a whatever it takes detective. Like he's just a corrupt detective and this is his town. And like he doesn't have a problem killing people like Roger if he thinks he's going to come in there and fuck with his town. Yes. Like he doesn't have to be the mob. And then that way it's still just the police chasing the crooks. You don't need this random third party that essentially, again, gets resolved on accident. Um, but yeah, it's it's so it was so bizarre to me. And honestly, when you're talking about like somebody to, to compete with with Michael Caine, I thought it was going to be Camp Freddy. I thought especially after Camp Freddy beats the shit out of him, I thought like there was going to be way more between Michael Caine and Camp Freddy. And then ultimately, that's where the double cross was going to be. It was like Mr. Bridger and Camp Freddy were going to try and cut Michael Caine out of it, but he was he outsmarted them, and again, he got away with the gold. But again, that doesn't. I guess it's it's too early for there to be dishonor among thieves in 1969. Because, and I will say, I even thought Camp Freddy was a fun character, like especially at the point where like everybody else is suited up and ready for the like everyone, regardless of what your job is, is suited up. But Camp Freddy's still in his pink suit, and he's like, I'm not getting in this goddamn um, this this <laughs> stupid racing jumpsuit until I absolutely have to. And I'm like, that's that's a subtle thing to that character that I thought was perfect, but you see so little of camp Freddy outside of him, like basically being part of the thugs that beat up Michael Caine. And then he's suddenly on Michael Caine's and then the whole thing between him and Bridger. And he's like, Bridger's like, tell Michael, tell, tell Charlie where Annie goes. I don't think that's a good idea. We just beat the shit out of him. He goes, I think he'll understand it. I'm like, I actually, I enjoyed that, that, you know, that dialogue, because again, I thought Camp Freddy was going to be a much bigger character, and I thought he actually did have the presence he could have countered Michael Caine as Charlie in this movie. And again, just nothing ever materializes. And it's and I'll let you get back to that in case you had something to say, but until, while it's on my mind, something else that never materializes when he brings up the Americans. There was another thing I'm like, oh, this is going to be the double cross where he brought in the Americans to get the gold out because, you know, Bridger shit on him the first time. The Americans never come up either. It's just it's an offhand thing, a comment he makes about you know the, the Americans always. No, after after Bridger tells him well, no, they even set up, but they even set up the Americans that early. You remember? Oh yeah, oh yeah, with the hamburger. Yeah, and then he brings it back up in the lavatory and says the Americans are always looking for young talent, young yes, eager talent. Yes, they respect. Yeah, they respect young talent. Yeah, nothing ever comes out of that either. Yeah, because that's why, like, I'll be honest, my attention span for this movie peaked early because those kind of lines were being dropped. And I was like, oh, you know, oh, we, he's put on some weight because he's been eating hamburgers in American prisons. He's, he's dealt with the Americans. It sets up a lot of intrigue. But, man, by like the 35, 40-minute mark, I'm like – all the good things this movie does, it feels like it happens by accident, and they didn't know that it was great. Mm -hmm. You know, and like it just in the edit, they found a couple of good things. But while they were filming it, there was no intent. Yeah. And there was another moment where um, when Mr. Burger's like, we need to have a funeral. 
so that he can go talk to Charlie about the mafia knows that are on to him. And he makes the comment, he goes, you're only going to get back here if it's in a coffin. I'm like, oh shit, they're going to like, he's going to have to hide in a coffin. Like he's going to come back to London in a coffin, but he won't be dead. Like he's going to fake his death at the end of this or something like that. Again, another thing that doesn't materialize. There's again, and I, get, I don't know if I'm so spoiled or just, I am so ingrained with how I feel cinema is supposed to be written with stuff like this, but I'm like, there's so many breadcrumbs where I'm like, oh, that's going to be a fun payoff at the end. Like, I'm remembering this because I'm expecting this payoff and like nothing, nothing pays off. And we'll use that as a transition because I want you to bring up the ending in terms of not paying off. <laughs> uh, where do I begin? Why? Okay, there... Say what you will about the plan, whatever. Let's just fast forward to there on this bus, this fucking Greyhound-sized bus on these mountain roads. Why are they going so goddamn fast? They've, they've just dumped – they've unloaded the gold out of – They basically oh. they, they they drive the three Mini Coopers um, spy hunter style into the back of the bus. They unload the gold, and then as they're going up the mountain, for whatever reason, they kick all of the cars – out of the oh, back of yes. the bus and down the side of the mountain. At which point, one of them lands on a street, so it's not even like it's going to be lost in the rubble. Yeah, like it's, it's someone's hidden. going to find it on the fucking street. And then they are just driving as fast and as reckless through the winding roads of the Alps. <laughs> and I mean, the driver is gleeful in his reckless driving. Like it keeps cutting to him, and he has just got a, a grin from ear to ear. And like, it, William. Big, big Willie style. Uh, but real quick, I'm glad you brought up dumping the Mini Coopers because we kind of touched on it in the opening. But what, what was the purpose of that? We're, we weren't really worried about forensic evidence in 1969, were we? Uh, I, don't, I don't know, but he also made that comment about fingerprints. I mean, when they're the the whatever castle or mansion, abandoned mansion that they did their plan and they had to burn everything so that there were no fingerprints. So... I guess, but you, they didn't burn the cars except for that one that spontaneously combusted. The, mm -hmm. the third car spontaneously blows up. The rest, like you said, just fall down the oh, mountainside I, and land on a road. I'm also pretty sure that Professor Peaches was not wearing gloves when he put in the new program for the traffic. <laughs> I'd have to go which back and watch it, which I won't. But <laughs> but yeah, so they're driving recklessly, and even the music that's playing that. I didn't know how this movie ended. I don't know if you did. No, I did I not. I had never seen it. But it almost felt like the movie was just going to roll credits to this like weird, gleeful, like, eh, we're driving pretty fast through the mountains, but <laughs> it'll be fine. Honky-tonk jazz is the only way I could think of to find the music. <laughs> Tonky jazz. Like, it was fucking weird. And then, please, pick it up. Pick it up at the, at the precariously positioned over a cliff with the gold at the back all the men at the front take it away brett so they take a sharp turn a big big william takes a, a turn too sharp at the the tippy top of the mountain and half the bus is now hanging off of the mountain with the gold somewhere near the middle a little bit closer to the back and all of the men have now they're they're standing at the front of the bus to counterbalance it and Michael Caine, I'm thinking like, okay, this is okay. This is my first thought when this whole thing fucking happens. All right, the entire movie is a fucking heist movie, and they wait until the fucking bus would they have the gold to create any tension. This is the only time in the entire movie there's any fucking tension. All right, 
Yes. Is, is when this bus is teetering off of a cliff. So they decide they've got $400, however many pounds of gold it is, because it's, it's $4 million worth of gold in bricks. So all the men are standing on one side. Michael Caine goes to slowly walk to the other side of the bus so that he can slowly start bringing the gold back. And it teeters somehow physics is involved it teeters the bus in the gold as a giant unit basically a pallet of gold <laughs> slides down the bus and i'm like how the fuck is the gold not too heavy to slide like this makes no sense so he does this several times until the point where the gold is almost at the other side of the bus all right and it is like okay they've now like there's no way he's gonna get over and get the gold they've already established it so he's laying on the floor of the bus there's, the seats have been taken out, obviously. He looks back of the crew of, we'll say, tel- 12 men, and he says, all right, f- gents, I've got another plan. Roll credits. <laughs> and that's the end of the fucking movie. Um, I, so, I just have so so much to say, but continue. Do, do you have any say, say what thoughts you, what on Say what your thought are, thoughts are about the movie, but I have some history behind the ending of this movie. That I will share with you because you already know. Well, I think it's a dog shit ending. It's terrible. Yeah, and, and I, I read a little bit, but so, but I didn't go into detail. I'm going to leave that to you. But I just, again, movies in 1969. It's just weird to me because it's. We've done a lot of movie reviews, and a lot of times I'll pause the movie to see what's left, what's left in the runtime. And when I tell you I pause the movie as Michael Caine. Again, some of the editing choices are so weird. Like we just cut away and then cut back to Michael Caine army crawling across the bus floor. And I'm like, how much time is left in this movie? And I pause it and I'm like, oh, there's like 58 seconds left in this movie. (laughs) And it just ends like it's uh, a shitty early 2000s ABC drama. Like, we'll see you next week. And. You know, spoiler, I don't think there was a sequel to The Italian Job. So, you know, (laughs) one of Britain's famous movies, they're still waiting to see what happened. So I thought it was a typical British like humor. They were going to roll credits and then suddenly it was going to start the rest of the movie. Because ironically, I I brought up Monty Python earlier in the movie. It's not much different than how Monty Python's Holy Grail ends, where they're about to siege the French castle to get the Holy Grail and then like modern police show up and arrest them all. And that's how the movie ends. And I'm like, Oh, this is a British thing where they just don't like ending movies. Like they just, they decide to fuck the audience. So, um, but yeah, no, I could not, I could not believe that that's where they ended it. So to give a little bit of history to the audience, and I don't know how much you read up on it, Travis. So the first part is there were apparently four different endings written for this movie. And they even paramount, like they did not have an ending written in mind like they at one point the ending was going to be like the mafia was going to show up with helicopters and they were going to pick up the bus and basically take the gold back um there was another alternate version where basically it continues that line and his plan is they're going to let the the gas run out of the bus and then that's going to allow the bus to teeter back so that they you know the front wheels touch the ground they all get out of the bus and then the bus with the gold basically falls off of the cliff onto the bottom of the mountain where the mafia is waiting. So the mafia gets the gold back. All of this is leading to essentially there being a sequel called The Brazilian Job, at which point it is 
the same the crew you know our original crew here are going and stealing the gold from the mafia who now have the gold so that's it was set up as a, a, a cliffhanger intentionally to set up a sequel but interesting enough michael uh kane also came and did an interview much later and actually talked about the real reason the movie ends that way <laughs> is because of censorship <laughs> And apparently at the time, you could not have a movie in which the criminals got away. Ah, So that was their resolution to it was they didn't technically get away because they didn't get the gold. So it's it's almost like uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the comic book code, which it was basically very much around the same era, like 50s and 60s, where. You know, the U.S. government got super paranoid about comic books and violence and destroying kids. And basically, they set up all these ridiculous rules where, like, basically, the good guys could never look like they were going to lose. Like, they always had to have the upper hand. Um, a, 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 what is it? Positions of authority had to be respected. So, like, police officers and judges all had to be respected in comic books. Um, to, to honor the family, you couldn't have gay characters um there was a lot of other like uh there was a certain level like there had to be a ratio of words to pictures and stuff like that so that's why you found advertisements in comic books was that was their get like their workaround to make sure there was enough like words in comic books is they would basically just load up advertisements with with text to to fulfill that but right. it's not much different than that we're like yeah no so the end of the movie is very much a again product of the time where it's like well they're technically crooks and they can't get away so we'll just end the movie on a cliffhanger where they don't actually get the gold which is funny because that's probably the least interesting reason that you could end the movie that way and it turns out that's why mm-hmm. just a purely meta reason yep so that very much very much a weird weird thing so um with that said are there do you want to talk any more about the movie or, or kind of what you thought about it before we jump into uh some chop shop i uh i, I really i don't because i just it amazes me i did we got 15 you know minutes what, of content out of a movie you hated? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll save my closing thoughts for the end because they are truly closing thoughts. So, no, right now, that that's all I've got. We can get into some chop shop. All right, let's get into a little choppy. All right. Do you mind if I go first, Travis? Because I, I think I have a pretty solid chop shop for this. Uh, I don't. So, yeah, please lead the way. All right. All right. So, you know, I, um, I'm thinking the first thing, a problem with this movie is there's, there's too many fucking people, right? There's like 12 people in this crew. Most of them are faceless. We don't know who they are. So I think we should like we should basically simplify the crew down. Uh, maybe some. Maybe some of the archetypes we have some for some modern heist movies like Charlie's going to be he, you know a professional fixer. He's your 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 top criminal type guy. Maybe um, I'm thinking like a tech guy. Um, and his tech a computer guy. Yeah, yeah. Com a computer As this guy. Movie says. Yeah, computer guy. His his background is he'll probably have like he'll pr have programmed some like website or something that everybody loves, but um, you know he never got the the proper credit for it. Um, you know, yeah, it, modernize it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe like a like a MySpace or something like that, like some kind of service where you know, like he uh, he he was behind it, you know, and maybe he'll even use that as a nickname. I, I have no idea. We're gonna have a, just a simple getaway driver, uh, maybe an explosive expert, so we can we can justify having some some boom booms in the movie. We'll have an an informant, the guy who got all the information for the job, you know, essentially maybe like uh, the what Roger was, you know kind of gets all the information for it. And then I think like a, like a father figure, you know, basically the guy who brought the guy, all these, these, these crooks together. A more personal connection. Exactly. Yeah. A more personal connection, you know? So as we know, all, all good heist movies have a, a double cross, but I'm thinking let's do something different. Let's get this double cross. Let's get it taken care of at like the beginning of the movie. So the movie is going to open with the actual Italian job being successful. We've already, they've accomplished the Italian job. But one of the group, one of the group actually double crosses them. And I'm thinking like it's going to be our informant guy. Maybe he's already shady. We should already suspect that because he has to like live a double life. So our inside man, and not only that, not, he's not just happy still in the gold. He winds up also killing the father figure to this group. All right. He, he kills them. Again, make it way more personal. Make it way more personal, right? Right. So... You know, our hero, maybe they're going to, he's going to have to drive. We'll still do the Alps. He'll drive, he'll drive his car, the bus, fan, whatever they're driving off the, off the, the mountains, maybe into a lake or something like that. Uh, and, and they'll survive. Okay. We're going to fast forward. All right. Everybody's living their life and all that. But our main, our main man, Charlie, he's watching the news and he finds out that that you know our 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 villain our our, uh, our informant man he's taken a new identity a double crosser, a double crosser. Yeah. he's taken a new life and he's just he's distraught he can't stand the idea he killed his father figure all right so he's going to have to hunt this guy down all right but as he's he's bringing the group back together to seek revenge to get the gold that was stolen from them they get their fair share and he gets revenge on the double crosser he's going to bring in a, a woman, a mysterious woman who winds up being none other than the daughter of the father figure. All right. And maybe she's okay. learned some skills. Maybe you know, the father figure was a, was a, a, you know, a crack thief cracker. You know, he was a, he was a top notch, th- uh, uh, what is it? Uh, safe cracker. Safe? That's what I'm trying to say. Safe cracker, thief crack cracker. I don't know what the hell I said before that, but all right. So she's gonna, she's gonna join in on this revenge plot. All right. Cause she's like, he killed my dad. I'm going to kill him, right? So the team sets up to steal the gold. They get, they, you know, they, they wind up at the, you know, the Double Crossers mansion, all right? Uh, and because, you know, he doesn't know, you know, the, the daughter was not, the, nobody knew. He's a father figure, but no one knew the daughter existed, you know, somehow. And we'll figure this, out how this, to, hmm? This sounds familiar. No, 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 no. So, She's going to wind up seducing him to take him on a date, and that's going to give them the time to break into his mansion where obviously he's got all of the gold stashed, you know, because that's where you would stash all of your gold as close as you can to you as opposed to some other safe place, I don't know, across (laughs) the ocean or something like that. It it gives us a reason why they're here, all right? Uh, So, you know, I'm thinking we still use Mini Coopers, all right? It's the Italian job. Um... And, you know, it's just it's a it's an homage, you know, and we, we have to keep certain pieces of the movie. You know, this is Chop Shop. We're not completely, you know, it's we're not rebooting it or anything, you know. And maybe maybe 
you know, the Mini is an iconic car. Maybe if the, the mm-hmm. Mini got re-released, you could have a movie kind of tie in around the same time. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. If we wanted to, like, update it into, like, yeah, like, uh, like I don't know. Product could, placement. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, which ironically, I'm glad you brought that up. So, Fiat, when they filmed uh, 1969 Italian Job, they actually, Fiat offered to give all the cars, because they saw this as a, a, a great, ad, you know, a marketing ploy to have all these. Um, but the company that owned British Motors or whoever owns Mini Cooper basically said they weren't providing any Mini Coopers. So, despite the fact that the... They could have gotten Fiat's to drive through the town for free, which also would have made more sense because it would have been easier to hide in the city, um, yep. an Italian city in an Italian car. They still felt that the movie was so British that they had to use uh, Mini Coopers, so they actually bought the Mini Coopers, which added to the cost of the movie, just so that they could drive Mini Coopers instead of Fiat's. But, sorry, it was just a little, little factoid I wanted to throw in here into the chop shop. So, I'm thinking... We sell the Mini Coopers. Maybe there's, you know, we can drive them through the mansion or something like that because they're so tiny or, or something like that, right? So they're setting it up. They're setting it up. Something's gonna happen. Maybe a party next door. The neighbors. So they they realize that they can't they can't cause a scene. It'll be too risky. You know, uh oh, something happens, right? They gotta change their plans. And not only that, our double crosser, he's gonna wind up finding out that there's a master plan because the daughter, who's right now, you know, has seduced him has basically taken him on a date to get him a wave. She's going to say something weird or obscure that's like something only the father figure would have said and like really give herself away because she's still kind of an amateur and like, well, we have to keep the movie going, right? So now, now that Double Crosser knows that they're they're, going to try and steal the gold back. So they've lost the element of surprise, right? So in addition to that, this is going to mean our inside man, our Double Crosser, he's going to have to transport that gold right maybe to a, a city outside we'll probably set this in the u.s it'll be easier to film here audiences you know respond better than that maybe that's the reason people didn't really like the italian job is like you know american audiences didn't understand where we were so maybe we'll put this in like la or something like that so he he loads up all the gold maybe we'll do like a couple armored cars or something like that and like the our computer guy is gonna have to figure out which one it is uh he's gonna be you know they'll drive the armored cars through the, the through la maybe new york probably la though because it's it's busy but not as busy as new york um and new york's already kind of a traffic jam so it won't be able to show how good our computer guy is because ultimately he's gonna have to hack into you know the la grid um and basically maybe instead of just doing a f- complete lockdown he'll just manipulate all of the traffic lights um to basically guide him, everybody where they need to be right Basically, the world's best game Man. of, like, you know, the the traffic light game on old computers, you know? Uh, I'm impressed with the level of detail that you've put into this job shop this week. I, I appreciate that. Um, so, at a certain point, like, they're going to get the, the figure out who the armored car is. Maybe they'll use the explosives they were going to use in the mansion. I forgot to mention, again, explosive guys here, so they were going to have to blow up the mansion, which I guess would have caused a scene anyway, even if they didn't have a party. True. Regardless. So, they're going... To blow up, maybe like they're so they'll they'll set up to where you know uh, one of our armored cars winds up uh, underneath an underpass, and in that exact spot, they've actually loaded the ground with explosives to blow it into the tunnels in the subway. Because again, I love that tunnel shot, right, Travis? So I gotta get, I gotta keep that tunnel mm-hmm. shot. But we will go through the subway of L.A. Right? They go in. 
there's it's not just an armored cart though all right because we have to give the daughter a chance to redeem herself right the father figure's daughter she's learned some some safe cracking you know techniques they're gonna open up this armored car there's gonna be a safe she's not confident she's not sure if she can do it or not all right but you know what she's gonna pull through She's a fucking champion, all right? She's going to pull through. They're going to unload all the gold out. Cassis fucking Charlie, or, yep, go ahead. What? You you said? No, I, I was doing some dream casting in my oh, head. okay, go okay. So, yeah, so she's going to do this. They load up the Mini Coopers. They're going to start driving away, but what do you know? What do you know? The Double Crosser catches them before they can get away with all the gold, right? Because we have to resolve that. We can't just leave it that on a cliffhanger, right? So he's going to get there... He's going to threaten to kill one of them or something like that. But then he's going to wind up getting caught by like a crime lord because a mafia man, maybe, I don't know, or some other crime lord who he like double crossed or fucked over earlier in the movie. Or maybe like he killed a cousin or a friend or something like that. So now our double crosser is going to get like dragged off and we're just going to assume he's probably going to get tortured or killed or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that allows our heroes to get away with their gold, right? The job that they stole. But I'm thinking yeah, we can't we can't have the heroes hurt the double crosser because then they're just as bad as him. Exactly. So we can solve that. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh -huh, I like that. Exactly. It's like it's almost like a Batman Begins thing. Like he doesn't have to kill Ra's al Ghul, mm -hmm. but he doesn't have to save him either. He doesn't have to save him either. So nice little loophole. Yep. So I'm thinking that we fast forward to everybody what they're doing with their gold. You know, everybody they're getting exactly what they wanted out of out of life. You know, what they had said maybe in the beginning of the movie, all of them after they've stolen it on their joy ride up to the top of the mountain, they're talking about what they're going to do with their gold. And now we get to you know basically book in the movie with actually seeing them with all of their gold, what they've done with it. You know, Charlie, maybe he's done with this life. You know, and he wants to settle down. And I'm thinking, why not settle down? With the daughter of his father figure, his father's daughter of his father figure, because they're they're not related, so it's not going to be weird or anything like that. So yeah, that's I think that's how we'll end the movie, you know. And I don't know, we could probably cast like I don't know some kind of like I don't know, maybe not like a top dollar action hero, but like somebody who's like in that realm or something. I I, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Uh, you know, my idea of the, the villainous casting, because we talked about how the, the movie as it stands, it doesn't have a nice counterweight to Michael Caine. Mm -hmm. I think if you were making a modern day movie, who's like a slimy kind of double crosser? Because ultimately that's what we thought we were getting was a double cross movie. I'm thinking Edward Norton would be a good villain. I don't know. Wow. Do yeah, Edward Norton. OK, I could maybe I could see that. I mean, he's kind of a if you're going to put like a buffer like an action guy is the hero. Like I could see Ed Norton being a little bit smaller, a little bit more Weasley a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah. A little more of an intellectual type yeah. to, to play against Outsmarts maybe a some? meathead type. Yeah. yeah. Oh, meathead. Like, Oh, like pain and gain. Not, uh, well, I, 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 the rock, the rock's going to be way too expensive. So maybe like a, like a yeah. Mark Wahlberg. Oh, okay. I think it hinges though. Cause this character is not really the character in the movie as it stands is more of a widow to a planner that the daughter, the daughter of the, the, the father figure, who would you get for that? Hmm. That's a good question. Do you, do you have anybody in, in mind? I mean, honestly, my mind goes to Charlize Theron, but you can't. That's probably aiming too high. We'd probably have to come underneath you that. Might, you might be able to get her. I mean, she's doing the fast movies, so we could probably get her to do uh, it. Oh, shit. You're... Oh, and then I oh think, shit. 
it also hinges on that father figure. Like you're going to want somebody kind of stoic, somebody, you know, uh, who's been around the block for a while. He, he well, could, you would almost, I think, meta wise, you would want maybe a father that you know about, like a father who also has a, a child in the acting game to kind of make that meta level work. Do you know any Donald Sutherland famous, would work for that? Is his son Kiefer? I think his son's Kiefer. Okay, the father figure, that's a double... I like that. I like that. And I feel like we have to do, again, These we're casting a lot of Americans. We need to really bring it back to that British roots. So, like, for our... For, like, our getaway driver, who would be... I mean, if we're thinking back to, like, the Fast franchise and stuff like that. Who's who's another British, like... Helen Mirren? No, no. Maybe somebody who's already been... Who's known for some driving movies or something Ah, like that. Like, the transporter. I'm thinking... You know who I'm thinking? You thinking Statham? Jason Statham's? Statham, I'm thinking Ooh. Jason Statham's. And that only... Oh, I guess we have two more people. We need our computer the guy. the guru? The computer guy. Yeah. yeah. Computer guy. Depends I'd... on the year you're making it. Like, yeah. if this is like an early... Two th- like, today, I don't know who you would get. Maybe in the early 2000s. Yeah. yeah. Somebody kind of awkward... We don't have a lot of budget left, so it's going to have to be somebody like people know, but like isn't going to cost us a lot. So he doesn't have to necessarily be like nerdy, but definitely like socially awkward, I think. I'm thinking either Tom Green or Um, you go with the other Green, Seth Green. I think Seth, Tom Green, I think is a little too weird. I think Seth Green, I think he can, he can, he can kind of ground it. And then lastly, I think we just need our, our demolition expert. And I hate to say this, but I, our cast is very white. I think we're going to... Which is why I did not enjoy this movie. One, yeah. Because it, it's hard to tell the characters apart. We mm-hmm. need a little more diversity. Absolutely. Instead of just having it be the guy who drives a bus off the cliff. So I'm thinking... Maybe we could get some music talent in here. I always like when we can get somebody who's like, you know, a, a triple threat. You know, who, who's who's not just in one... It, it, to get the music people into the movie, you know? Is there anybody you could think of... Maybe he was who's part of a larger group or something like that, and now is kind of like trying to do a solo career. I mean, we can well, even go Tokyo back to like that two thousand, that two thousand era. Yeah, since we're you don't want to do Bow Wow because no. that's that's uh, Tokyo Drift. Um, yeah, I don't know. Method Man. No. What do you think about like Most Deaf? Ooh, I like that. He's got a little bit more of an acting cred mm-hmm. and maybe some of the other yeah he's I very think, i think i think it just as a, as a character very different than the rest of them he'll definitely stand out well my here's my only concern honestly brett is you you were so detailed with the script and the kind of how everything went it feels like we've got a solid cast it feels like we should not release this episode because it feels like we're kind of sitting on you know you know all, all jokes aside a lot of gold here we don't want to let it go off the cliff in a bus yeah so let's just uh yeah we could call it what's a good title you think to to reboot it well i just think we should keep it with the italian job i mean despite the fact that the majority of the movie is actually set in the united states you know again because it's not a reboot it's it's a chop shop yeah exactly yeah it's sparkability yeah Uh yeah let's just stick with the italian job just stick with the italian job (laughs) (laughs) 
So, all that being said. <laughs> so before we started this episode, the only, again, we'll, we'll say this. We do not talk about these movies ahead of time because we don't want to spoil anything. The only thing I told Travis was do not mention the 2003 Italian job at all. Which was so goddamn difficult. So goddamn it difficult. It was all I asked was like, because I have a bit for the chop shop. So for anybody who doesn't know, we literally just did the entire synopsis and casting for the 2003 Italian job. Um way different fucking movie like it is one of those things where like when you say you want to reboot the, the weird thing is this second the italian job reboot in 2003 was almost the premise of the brazilian job because the italian job 2003 starts off with them stealing gold from like the mafia and i'm like oh they just basically like they couldn't get the italian job too off the ground so they decided to reboot it like it's one of those soft reboot type things. I'm like the fact that I don't know, maybe Michael Caine did have a cameo in it. I have no idea, but like it is ridiculous how different the to the point where it's like, why the fuck did you even put Mini like the Mini Cooper is the only thing that kept the movies the same and that they some of the characters had the same name. And by some I mean excuse me, two. just Charlie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, who's the Char- second? John Bridger. Who isn't the same? John Bridger isn't a, you know, Al Capone in a prison. He's instead the father figure. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, Goddamn. Yeah, the Mini Cooper, it's weird that because what a difference, uh, you know, several decades makes in Hollywood because just like the, it feels like the Transformers got rebooted as a uh, General Motors commercial. (laughs) It, It feels like the Italian job was only rebooted to try to sell Mini Coopers in the U.S., which. I mean, it was relatively successful. Well, um, <laughs> even to that point, it's like it made sense when you hear like they're like, "Oh no, we won't take the free cars from Fiat because this is a very British movie, so we want these super British cars." When you remake the movie, it's like, "Well, you didn't." Like again, the Italian job was the first thirty seconds of the movie <laughs> for the remake. Yeah, and I don't know if during your research for this podcast, but for a good 10 years after the 2000 – did you say it was 2003 that the Italian job came out? Yeah, 2003. God damn, I didn't realize it was that old. But uh, coming off the 2003 version, for a long time in developmental hell was the sequel called The Brazilian Job. But I guess much like – you know, history repeating itself, it never – they could never get the second one off the ground. Mm Mm-hmm. It was always just teetering, um, you know, somewhere between on the <laughs> ground and you would say off the ground, right? Like just kind of like, you know, couldn't figure out where it was going to land. Um, but I guess I, I don't I don't know. Now that I can finally mention the 2003 version, I, I much preferred the 2003 version. I didn't think the 2003 version was anything special. But like we mentioned early in the podcast, that connective tissue is everything mm-hmm. like make me understand the motivations of at least a couple of people and i will give you a lot to play with but if it's just shit happening for no goddamn reason the way it is in the 69 version i i could not enjoy this movie yep all right so do you want to do we have two segments left i know we're running this is gonna be a longer episode but do you want to do market value and tagline yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right. And, and real quick, in case the audience is wondering, my chop shop um, was pretty much Brett's chop shop, except <laughs> I was I was just going to only mention the movie Goldeneye from 1995, uh, only because it's proof positive that you can make a very formulaic and generic movie. But if you give me, because uh, I mentioned that Michael Caine needs the counterpoint, mm-hmm. he, he needs a counterweight to him. In Goldeneye, when it 
one of the reasons I think it's one of the more successful Bond movies is because you have Pierce Brosnan and his mirror is Sean Bean. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like both of those actors are the same level of capable. Uh, they do enough character work to kind of show that they're flip side of the same coin. If I were going to remake this movie, and I guess Edward Norton in, in the remake is that to Mark Wahlberg. And that's what I think this movie in 69 was missing. There, there's just a vacuum on the other side of, of Michael Caine. So, yeah, let's uh, let's move into market value uh, and, and finish this baby, this, this baby out. All right. Well, Ant- or, uh, fuck. Well, Travis, I'm going to give <laughs> the I, God damn it. I just completely I was going to say I'm going to give you the same six minutes you gave me. I was trying to make a golden eye joke and then I was reading off all the fucking names. Yeah. All right. It's always a good oh, one. That would have that would have been well done, sir. right? That it would have. Well and I was gonna say it's ten a shame minutes. You fucked it up. Well, I was I was gonna say the same ten minutes. I'm like, it wasn't ten minutes. Was it eight minutes? How many minutes was it? And I had to look it up, and of course, fucked up the fucked up the line. It's <laughs> it's the same six minutes for anybody who's listening. I'm gonna give you the same six minutes you gave me, James. <laughs> All right. Yeah, th- yeah, that's shorthand, but it works. It, it yeah. works to set up an opposition. So yeah, go ahead. All right, so we'll do market value first because market value was actually difficult for this one because apparently Box Office Mojo, who's owned by IMDb and IMDb Pro, nobody, the only data I could get was when they re-released the movie in like the late 2010s. Uh, I think they re-released in like 2018, 2019, and 2020, and that was, so I had to really do some digging. Plus, apparently at the time this came out, Paramount was doing some really fucking sketchy things with their books to basically fuck writers um, out of money because they were supposed to get a cut of it. So, like, Paramount would charge themselves money to where the movies looked like they basically were in the red and they lost money on them because then uh, they didn't have yes. to give more money. Like, it was a lot of shady shit. But from my research, the one number I can get consistent is how much production, how much it costs, the production value of the movie. How much do you think this movie cost to make? Fuck. Fuck. In 1969. Yeah, man, I could give you. Oh, um, there, there, even though I, I laughed at, at the action, quote unquote, set pieces, I still imagine that there was a lot of work to be done, a lot of closing this road stunt work. I'm going to say. Well, before you do, I'm going to give you a little something. All right. This okay, is a, this okay. is a. I don't, this is probably not going to help you. The 2003 version had a budget of 60 this million. This is not going to help me yeah, at all, 60 that million dollars. Help it's, at all. No, it doesn't help at all. It's actually, that's that's a red herring if I've ever said one. So yeah, you can yeah, ignore I'm, that. I'm not going to fall, I'm not going to fall into your trap, Brett. I'm not going to say a ridiculously high number. I'm going to say $1.1 million. Okay. You're a little, you're a little off, but you're definitely closer than 60. Um, high was, or low? You were low. It was okay. somewhere between three and three point five oh. million dollars to make this movie. Okay. Um. So, how much do you think it grossed? Oh Jesus Christ! Worldwide. Worldwide. It did not oh, do well Jesus. in the U.S. I'll tell you that. Now, this does not include the re-releases. This no. is just a this initial is, theatrical. This run. is supposed to be the initial theatrical run. Oh God. According to my uh, research. You said it costs about three. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a cult classic. I have to feel like it made at least number a little thirty-eight bit of and, and the British best movies ever. Apparently, the line when he says, wow, "You're only supposed to blow," 
As apparently when he says the line, you were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off is like huge in like Britain. Like that's one of the, the, the most quoted thing movie or yeah, most quoted quotable movie things over there is you were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. I'm going to guess that it made $2.3 million. What'd you say? $2.3 million. Okay. So this is where it gets weird. So the article, I, I had to do some math. The article I read said that it was $60 million in the black net. What? Which, which means that's what it netted. So my assumption is if I add the $60 million net plus $3.5 million for production, it grossed nine point five. That is, That's what I... If that checks out, because black would mean again, black net. That's what it it earned. That's profit. That's profit. No. So the gross would be nine point five. Wait, oh, hold on. This gross, is bad gross. podcasting. But explain that math to me one more time. Because gross does not is not your net. Net is after all expenses are taken out. So if it was sixty million, right? But you said it. How much was it in the black? Sixty million in the black. So that to me says that that's six. It made sixty million dollars after production, budget, and marketing. Exactly, which was right? three point five. So it grossed nine point five because the gross would have been the net would have had to have taken out the production costs. So therefore, the gross was nine point five because the net was six. And the only reason I did all this yeah. math is because whenever we do this, I take IMDb or Box Office Mojo, which gives us the gross and not the net. So I needed to come up with the gross number, which I believe is 9.5. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Just okay. to keep that, it consistent. Yeah, just to keep it consistent with how we do this. Like, if you were to look at the legend of Pluto Nash, it netted like <laughs> $2 million, but cost like $100 million. So, like, it netted negative 98 million dollars <laughs> but it grossed two million so that's why gotcha. I, was like, okay, I think yeah. it gro i believe uh, my math and research is correct the movie at its original release grossed 9.5 and earned six million net which i mean yeah i guess if for such an iconic movie it would have had to have been a mm -hmm. certain level of successful so that makes sense mm -hmm. all right yeah, so sorry, there was a lot of explanation with that. You got to watch two idiots try and do math. Um, <laughs> so we apologize for that. But that's that's where I came up to. If anybody disagrees with me, I don't know, send us a, I don't know, a comment. I don't fucking know. Do we even have a mailbox or anything? I don't know. We'll get to that. We um, don't. We'll work on that. Yeah, yeah. we'll work on that. <laughs> um, so let's get into uh, let's our last segment, or I guess a second to last segment. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to we're gonna get the, we're gonna get a tag for this baby. tagline so for those who haven't listened yep. before the name of the, the, the game is simple i'm going to give travis three taglines one tagline is from the movie one tagline is from a movie adjacent to it that i have chosen and the third is a tagline i have created myself travis's objective is to identify the original tagline or the tagline yeah the tagline for the movie so travis if you are ready i will give you your taglines. 
I'm ready. I, I don't want to pull the curtain back on your segment too much here, but I fully anticipate that you're going to give me the tagline for the 2003 Italian job as well. So I'm, uh, Depends I'm really going to try to be on I, my game. I definitely might have looked at those, and maybe they were a little too obvious. We'll see. We don't okay, know what I did. All right. all right, here we go. Maybe with your best shot. Go ahead. Hit me with your best shot. All right. It's not about the money. It's about the money. Ciao, baby. Introducing the plans for a new business venture. Those are your three taglines. I can repeat any of them you need. Did I lose you or are you thinking? No, no, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Okay, okay. Uh, It was just that that long silence. It's like, oh, shit. You made up ciao, baby. You sure? As sure as I can be. All right, I did make up Chow Baby. Is the tagline, <laughs> it's not about the money, <laughs> it's about the money, or introducing the plans for a new business venture. And one of these is actually from the 1969 movie? Yes, it is. I'm going to... I'm going to say it's not about the money. It's about the money is from the 2003 version because that's way too good to be from the 1969 version, leaving the business venture one to be the original tagline. Yes, the original tagline was introducing the plans for a new business venture. Yeah, that sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas, and am I right in saying that it's not about the money, it's about the money is from the 2003 version? It absolutely is. I thought even that one was a little too close, uh, was a little too easy to pick up on because it was about revenge. There was also the get in, get out, get even was from 2003. I'm like, oh, that's real fucking obvious. Yeah, no, I I really like it's not about the money, it's about the money. Like, I, I think that's... It's clever enough and simple enough to where that, you know, I'm just, again, this perfectly ties into how I want to close out this episode. So I'm just going to leave that there for a moment in case you have more about the tag on. Oh, no, absolutely not. We're ready to close this baby up. Okay. So this, I kind of made it clear and you also kind of made it clear why we have to do them. I hate old movies, but I think it's important to do them because I think it's very illuminating to show the progress. If you would call always call it progress of cinema. I think sometimes things take a step back, uh, as we move through the eras of cinema, but this movie, the, the 69 version and the 2003 version, they're very much of their particular eras. I feel like, 60s and 70s cinema you could kind of play fast and loose you didn't really have to have a tight narrative especially with a movie like this where you're involving car chases and car stunts even though i agree with your point 100 percent, i didn't even quite put my finger on it while watching it the chases feel very benny hill like you could have yakety sacks playing in the background a lot of these chases and it would be perfectly in place But that's not the tone that I want from something that is dealing with the opening of this movie being a character being murdered and then 
push down the hillside into a river. I think there's a certain balance between comedy, action, drama that in 69 was just not present. Whereas in the 2003 version, look, I haven't thought about the 2003 Italian job in probably 15 years. But thinking about it through the lens of this movie, it's a dramatic improvement. Like like you said, it there's not a whole lot of connective tissue between the two as far as it's not a, a pure remake at all. Far from it. But it gives you that general premise, and it still is able to make you laugh. So the 69 version, I'm just like – Ultimately, my conclusion is for 95% of people who watch movies, this movie, 69 Italian Job, is just going to be too old and dated. There's just going to be too many things that you're like, why was this the decision-making process while making a reasonably big-budget movie in the 60s? Why was that the case? Whereas in 2003, that it felt like a sweet spot because – you would think, okay, 2003 was great. If you made a 2021 Italian job, it would be even better. I disagree because now if you made this, it would only be made if we thought we could make the next Fast franchise. Mm-hmm. So I guess ultimately it, it's funny, I guess, in the sweet spot of cinema, it's between 69 and 2003 where you could you could flesh out a story enough – but it was still a standalone film. Um, whereas the Italian job, I mean, it's funny. I say all of that, but it ends on a cliffhanger that never gets resolved because this was 1969. That was not a, a good idea. So ultimately my recommendation on this is watch it only if you intend to watch the 2003 version so that you can appreciate the leap in cinema between 69 and 03. And that's how I would wrap that up. That's I was going to say very similar. Like it's one of those where there is it is an iconic movie. And it's sometimes I like to go back and watch old movies just to see kind of, you know, the people who are making movies now, what they were influenced. Yeah, the forefathers and what they were because like you'll somebody I'm sure will make a reference in some movie in the next 10, 15 years that I'll watch. And it will be, you were only supposed to blow the doors off. And now I'll understand what that is actually from and the context of that joke. Um, It is another one of those where it is, if you are a lover of cinema and you want to go back and, as you said, like, see where we've come and, like, at that era, what was important and what they were doing and how they were doing shots. And even to the point where, like, you know, the choreography of of combat and and like fights you know it was that whole you you mentioned it like they went behind the the you know partition the partition so that you just saw the shadows beat them because they couldn't choreograph the fights the makeup wasn't where it needed to be to make it actually look like he was being hit or anything that or maybe you know you didn't want to risk damaging or injuring an actor or actress so it's like the fight scenes even then were like they're they're super like it's funny how they kind of get around a lot of that stuff. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I, I don't think any just casual movie viewer is going to enjoy this movie. So that will be where I kind of leave that. I didn't hate the movie. Um, it's not one that I need to go back and watch. I Better than The Lion King. Yeah. Better than The Lion King, either version. Yep. I, I do appreciate some of what happened. It is one of those where like I think a lot of it was... Again, I don't know if it's being spoiled by modern cinema, but like 
again, like I said, they they left so many breadcrumbs that went nowhere where it's just like I really was expecting more. And I guess that's the problem is like it's one of those movies you look at. It almost has unlimited potential and it's just yes. squandered. And you're just like even for moving, it's like for moving 69, this could have been fantastic if like it just felt like. I use this analogy all the time. Like it felt like a cocktail napkin idea. It felt like they wrote it all on the cocktail napkin and then just went and pitched the meeting. And that was their, their framework for the movie. They never actually took it to the typewriter and actually flushed it out. It was just let's we have this idea for a movie and they did it. Yeah. This will be way out of left field, but I think it'll be a good way to close it. Uh, I'm a sports fan in addition to a movie fan. And I often think about, you know, if I could transport myself from 2021 and go play in the NBA as a 25 year old in 1969, I think I would be a great player in the NBA because I happen to be tall and skilled. But I think it's also you can use that same logic. If you transported us, the Hollywood chop shop back to a boardroom in 1969 and they've got the Italian job script out there. I think we would both kind of naturally jump to like, Hey, let's try to tie these characters together a little bit more. Let's give somebody a backstory. Let's give somebody a motivation. And I think people's jaws would have been on the floor. Like, Oh wow, that makes a lot of sense. Let's try to tie this together, make it a little bit tighter. But it's just a difference in eras. Mm-hmm. In 1969, that building a universe, building a, a group of characters, it was not important. It was, hey, we could do some stunts with some Mini Coopers. Let's build a movie around it. It's just, it's it's super easy to be the next millennia quarterback, you know, to look back. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's an interesting exercise if you're a film historian. That That's where I would leave it. All right. Well, I think that's a a good place to wrap it up. So, uh, yeah, we hope to see you for the wrap up where we we look at No Sudden Move, 2021's No Sudden Move, 1989's Tango and Cash, and 1969's The Italian Job. Kind of cross compare those three. Yeah. Holy shit. Again, the irony being, we thought we were picking three double cross movies. This was going to be the double cross trilogy. I don't think any of them actually had a double cross in it <laughs> so, so yeah, that's we'll, we'll, that just, we'll save that i will just yeah i will just gonna say that's bad marketing but <laughs> we are or i don't know if that's our fault three for three but yeah we'll get into that in the wrap-up so uh thanks everybody hopefully we'll see you for uh, the wrap-up bye yeah, Brett, I also just wanted to say I need to take a break between the this review and the wrap-up because I don't want to have an upset in my natural rhythm uh, at my toy that was broken into earlier. So I just got to make sure I, I get that done. See ya. Your toilet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, listen, a, a man from Britain, there, there's nothing more sacred than the toilet. So yeah, I just... I, I need a did, few minutes before we start recording. Did again. you did you see did the face of the guy who did it or anything? Ah, uh, you know what, Brad? I I stopped listening to the dialogue after that. So if there was a if <laughs> there was a good witty line, it was after just that, no. I don't it was know. just no. All you no, say. I didn't see him, Brad. No, I didn't see him. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.
Wait. Isn't it his majesty's Michael Caine? Who, why are you bringing up Steve McQueen? <laughs> 